Hello and welcome to the One Way to Do It podcast presented by Genius Move Audio Academy. My name is Paul Brewer and in this podcast I chat to audio professionals about their skills. Please visit geniusmove.ie for more details on the academy. According to Wikipedia, a music synchronization license or sync for short is a music license granted by the holder of the copyright of a particular composition, allowing the licensee to synchronize or sync music with some kind of visual media output, film, TV shows, advertisements, video games, accompanying website music, movie trailers, etc. Today's guest is Charlotte Henson, who works in the sync department for Domino Publishing, which is linked to Domino Records, the label to have the Arctic Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand on the books. 2023 is the label's 20th anniversary. I spoke to her recently from London over the internet, and we talked about her initial musical experiences in her homeland of Holland, and how she ended up working in sync in London. So, we met 12 years ago, whatever it was. Longer, probably. Yeah? I think almost 15 15. What age were you then? You were in in Ireland doing a bit of recording for an album, wasn't it? How did all that happen? I think I was 16 at the time. 16? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, we were kids. But it still kind of feels like it was a few years back, you know? It's like, I don't know, I I remember everything very clearly. So it definitely made like a huge impression, I think. How did that all happen? Like, how, how did you end up making an album? How did you end up in Ireland? How did you end up working with Phil? Well, the Ireland part was pretty random, actually. So I think by the time we were recording our album, I think we had been together for like maybe two or three years. Since I started that band, we just got picked up quite quickly. We got signed within a year, uh, released an EP, got picked up by, you know, like all the Dutch press. But yeah, I was like 15 at the time. Um, we were from a really small town. Honestly, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. But I think that probably why it was so fun and why, you know, we just went into it like head first and like, and then I think by the time we, the album was kind of on the table, we started recording with a Dutch producer and engineer. And I think we did like, a few songs with them and I really enjoyed it because I was kind of into going a bit more into that more like pop mainstream direction because what we did was mainly like 160 BPM pop rock with me and my like uh, micro core just running around and singing about my like teen drama basically. I mean I guess it worked you know. (laughs) We started recording with these different people and I thought it was great, but I think that the guys, it was like me and three guys, I think maybe there was a bit of a disconnect, I think, in in what they had in mind creatively. So I think after we recorded the first few songs, we decided that maybe we wouldn't do the rest of the album with them. And also I think the studio that we recorded that was really fucking expensive. You know, we weren't professional musicians or something so there was some like ADHD in the band so I think we needed a little bit more time than like three full like pressure days in in that really expensive studio so I think that's where we kind of paused and then 
our manager asked the other producer to recommend someone else. His manager was also connected to Phil Hayes. Right. I mean, I didn't know much about him at the time, but I did know Bellix One because of the OC, and I was a huge fan of the OC. So I was like, oh, that's cool, because then we're in a way linked to the OC soundtrack. I think that was like 16-year-old logic at the time, you know? And then I was like, Ireland, oh my God, we get to go to Ireland for this. I had never been on a plane, you know? And so I was like, that's fucking exciting. <laughs> so yeah, our parents drove us to the airport. We brought our gear. I had a Juno 60 at the time, which was really heavy. And in its flight case, I had to like, you know, queue for a long time to get that on the plane and stuff. I think I had my name wrong on my boarding pass. It was all like, <laughs> there were a lot of like firsts, but it was incredible. I think we spent maybe like two weeks in Clara recording with Phil. I think we played like football on our lunch breaks and, you know, it was all and then we recorded some other bits in the Sun Studios in Dublin as well, which is where, you know, we met many people and, and I ended up going back there a few years afterwards for like little like work experience and stuff as well. But That was your sort of first experience with the music biz. What has you in London? And how did you get there? <laughs> so I studied international music management. Um, because I think because I was so young when we kind of had our peak with the band, I think I was just too scared to go to a music academy because I was like, I've already kind of had like these big gigs and we've had, you know, some significant success. So I think I would just, I was just really scared that maybe, I don't know, they wouldn't think that I was good enough. So I was just like, you know what? I always really enjoyed the business side of things, even though we had like a management and uh, booking agent and stuff. I was, you know, handling all the merch and like our administration and all the uh, logistics and stuff. I just, I loved that part. I loved kind of like arranging everything. So I was like, I wanted to study in English because I wanted to improve my language uh, also for songwriting purposes. But I loved music too much to just study language, basically. So I was like, you know what? There is this course out there, which is called International Music Management. Um, Where did you study that? It's in Haarlem, which is a city really close to Amsterdam. All right, okay. So I lived in Amsterdam and it was like 20 minutes uh, by train. Because, yeah, that was the one that was in English and it was not an arts bachelor, but it was a business bachelor, which I thought would be very sensible, you know, <laughs> and uh, or maybe my parents thought that they didn't push me, but they were like, yeah, that's probably a good decision. <laughs> and I liked the extra challenge of it being in, you know, not my native language. So I think in my third year, when I had to do an internship, I got into sync. Um, I did an internship with a music supervision company in Amsterdam and I think I did like a minor uh, at uni about like music publishing and uh, sync. I did an exchange with Berkeley in Boston, which was more about like music licensing and sync. We visited some like ad agencies and stuff. And then, yeah, in my internship, I got to do like music research for ads. I got to like, I wasn't producing, but I was kind of project managing other composers, like demoing for for ads for like bespoke jobs basically 
and I did a lot of like uh, copyright law um, and that kind of stuff at school. So yeah, it just all kind of started to take shape. So at the time, the band was kind of falling apart as well. All the old guys had left already, but I kind of continued with the name um, as more of a solo with session band situation. Was signed to a different label, who like you know had high promises, but they <laughs> they dropped me after one single. So I think at that time, you know, I was like, right, I now live in Amsterdam. But what age were you then? Do you think twenty twenty one? And I was just like, oh, fuck, like, what do I do now? Because since I was 14, like, it was always the band and, you know, there was always a manager and we were always just going, going, going. Um, So I think I kind of gave myself a little reality check and just realized, like, actually, um, I do need to pay my rent and I don't want to end up being a music teacher. Also, I don't have the skills for that. So, yeah, I, I did that internship. I got offered a job there as a junior creative producer after my internship, fully went into like the advertisement industry. Uh, we worked in Germany a lot as well. So I very quickly kind of expanded my network outside just the music industry, but more into like the, the ad industry and then later on like film and TV as well. So I think I worked there for two and a half years, then got offered a job by a rights holder independent publisher in Amsterdam and I took the job because I was I, I enjoyed like creating music with people for ads as soon as the ad was out that meant the end of the song and if you're at a rights holder where I'm still am now different one um what I really like about sync is that by pitching or like you know creating placements music placements you actually get to contribute to the long-term career of a writer or artist you know because one sync you know whether it's like a couple of hundred quid or like you know uh, a lot more some bands you know can record their next EP because of that little sync placement or you know expand their fan base or so so I kind of like the longevity of it so did that for three, four years. But it was always the plan to go abroad. I never really planned to stay in the Netherlands. Uh, it's a very small country. There's a really interesting music industry uh, and scene, but it's not huge, at least not in the on the sync side, for independent music. And I was always like, you know, an indie gal. So I felt like if I wanted to do sync at a certain level, with music that I was really passionate about, I had to move with pleasure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I moved to London in 2019, just before Brexit, got really lucky. It was nine months before and um, worked for a smaller like boutique artist and label services company called Cartel Music Group. Did Global Sync for them. I kind of helped build Sync as a service for their um artists and clients and then in 2021 the head of sync at domino uh, publishing and recordings she decided to leave after 12 years and that's where i came in cool <laughs> yeah so i've been there ever since and i get to work with the music of the bands that i bought my first cds from so it feels like kind of proper uh, full circle situation <laughs> 
should you explain what is sync? Yeah, of course. Um, sync is the synchronization or, or like the pairing between music and audiovisual uh, content. So that could be advertisements, um, games, TV, film, trailers, podcasts even. <laughs> Um, yeah, so everything that kind of uses music in that way. And there's kind of two sides of it. If you work in sync, there's a creative part where you pitch for uh, briefs that you receive. So it could be like, oh, for the next season of The Crown, we're looking for music either from a specific era or a specific genre or lyrical theme. And you kind of know your catalog. So you search within your catalog um, and then you make suggestions to the creative person in charge and then on the other side there's more like the business side of it which is uh, negotiating a deal so we get a lot of direct song requests like oh you want to use this song by villagers for uh, I don't know a certain campaign or a certain movie um, this is the media, the territory, the duration. Um, is there any exclusivity um, in the territory? And then we negotiate a proper fee based on budgets and, and all of those uh, terms. When I was a boy, the idea of sync would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been a cool thing for a band to do. No, it was proper sellout, wasn't That's it? That's totally changed now, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it has. The sync relationship for a, a band, the sync business, be a significant part of their income then. Absolutely. I think part of why that shift happened between like, oh, you're selling out or, you know, you're just selling your soul and it's awful. I mean, obviously, historically, there's been a few awful pairings like that. But I guess what we learned is that obviously artists stopped selling CDs. Um, so there was a huge shift or decrease in in income so i guess the industry had to look for other lucrative ways to make money it probably took the labels a while to start spending less on creating a record as well and i guess also obviously there's been a huge increase in output i mean uh, video streaming uh, netflix uh, i mean there's so many platforms right now i think there's more Outputs, obviously, there's not just the classic TV ads anymore. Um, I think the way people perceive brands has changed a lot. I think brands have really learned that people can pause the TV, so you need to get your message across in a cool way. No one wants to listen to like an awful voiceover that's going to sell you a product, but if they play a song you might actually, um, you know, walk to the kitchen to get a drink. And it's like, oh, oh, what am I hearing? And then it's like, oh, is this Coca-Cola? Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that currently it's pretty cool. It can be. But every band, at least, you know, the artists that we work with, we represent them. So it's always their choice. We can only advise and help kind of honor their creative uh, wishes in that sense. The whole sync business will have grown a lot because the income streams are much reduced, particularly with the streaming. So has that been a sort of an advantage for you? Is that how the whole thing works? I just made my annual report and I think in a, you know, in a year's time, the amount of requests for us, probably good to mention that my team, we do, we're a team of three, 
And we do all sync activity for the world, excluding the US, whereas like usually the UK and France are the biggest territories for us. But within a year's time, I think the amount of requests we received, so direct deal requests, increased by like 50 or 55%. And this is, you know, after COVID. So is that from the bands or the, you know, the businesses? Businesses. Right. Yeah. And, and therefore, it'll drive the band part as well. Yeah, and obviously, I'm speaking on uh, of the catalogue as a whole. So there's obviously particular artists that get requested a lot. Like we signed Wet Leg um, two years ago. That's part of why we've seen a huge spike in, in requests, but not just them. Um, yeah, it's just, I think, company-wide. I think industry-wide, even, is continuously growing. You spoke about the likes of the big TV series, whatever, and our idea of an ad up until this point. So where does it go? Does it go into, you know, does it go into TikTok ads, stuff like that? Or, you know, does it become smaller and but broader and stuff like that? Yeah, I think I think um, generally what is a big advantage for advertisers is that because it's more digital focused now, uh, it's way easier to to target your audience. Whereas if it was TV, you know, there's been, there were some like testing uh, methods, but don't really know how accurate that was. How do you actually know, you know, which members of the family are in that room watching the ads? So I think because of it can be so much more specific now, instead of making one gigantic campaign that is that's just being pushed to like the the masses. And also, especially after COVID, where, you know, times were uncertain, brands were a bit more reluctant to spend a huge budgets all at once. Um, we've definitely seen like a, a shift towards more uh, short form digital content, more market specific, but it also means lower budgets, but more opportunities. More of them. Yeah. Which I guess for artists is quite good because... The chances that you'll land this like gigantic car TV ad—they're tiny, you know. It's it's almost next to nothing uh, that you'll ever land one of those. But because there's way more output now, it just you know it's just more the 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 pond is bigger now, I guess. Is a sync company essentially a record company now? Yeah, there's different different kinds of companies. So I guess most labels and publishers will have sync teams because they obviously have usually exclusive deals with their artists or writers to either own or represent their rights, whether that's master rights or publishing rights. But for artists that are unsigned, there are also sync agencies. They usually work either exclusively or non-exclusively, and they will represent your either masters or publishing for a period of time, but focused on pitching for sync. So they won't do your royalty administration or your, I don't know, PPL or PRS registrations, um, but they will merely just represent you for sync, um, which is, you know, a good option if you're not at the level yet where you're assigned or if you just want to do it all yourself. That's an option as well. You should see it more as sync is just one of the departments within a label or publisher. I think traditionally where you have like the promotions department, there is one person for press or, you know, even like print 
press or digital press. There's one radio person. I guess what we're doing in Sync as well, you're, you're in a way, you're plugging the music. But what I like about Sync is that we're not part of this campaign you know it's like when an album comes out you kind of have what like six to eight weeks to plug a record and to get the results yeah whereas in sync like the track age really doesn't matter um it's just whether it does the job yeah it's way more timeless the focus is more on the genre or the mood or the lyrical theme but at the same time you know if you look at certain series like let's say Stranger Things has a huge like 80s focus so we've got some 80s music in our catalogue and it just keeps on getting requested all the time and I guess what I always tell artists who might be a bit might have their hopes up and they're releasing a record in the next three months and then in five months they're really disappointed because they haven't had a sync yet um, I always reassure them because it's like it's not a campaign you know it's like the music it's timeless in a way, and sometimes, you know, it takes two days and sometimes it takes two years until a song lands. And I guess the only thing that we can guarantee is that we create those opportunities, uh, but we can't guarantee that it will actually land because that's, you know, it's just subject to so many decision makers and, yeah, other factors that are out of my control. So what's the oldest piece of music you've represented? I think... I think with Domino, I think our stuff probably starts in the 80s. We've signed, which is publishing side. There is a big difference in the Domino Records side and publishing side. They're two separate companies, but also kind of one. Um, but the publishing catalog, we have a lot for which we don't rep the masters as well. So I guess we have some 80s catalog there. We've got one writer from the Human League with Susie and the Benchies, or at least one of the writers. Visage, there's there's a lot of like kind of 80s, old 80s synth pop that I love. And then, you know, we've got like the Jesus and Mary chain. Um, so there's, yeah, it kind of starts in that era. So yeah, sometimes a client comes to us and it's like, oh, we need classical orchestral piece from the 1940s and I'm like I can't help you with that sorry <laughs> Do people ever make music you know who are making a TV series or whatever and to say can we get a bit of music like that made in another fashion Do you work on that sort of area or Yeah we we definitely do bespoke projects as well um, I guess how you were briefing it is more kind of like a sound alike which it happens a lot, but probably less so when clients are asking a specific composer that's also an artist. Like, let's say we work with Son Lux, who have just done the score for uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was, you know, nominated and won all these Oscars and other awards. Um, but yeah, if a client would come to us and be like, oh, can the guys from Son Lux like basically make a sound alike of this, then we probably politely pass. But about the same band, yeah, we actually at the moment I'm working on negotiating a potential uh work for hire piece for like a luxury brand commercial because they love their music. And what we then negotiate is that they will get almost complete freedom, artistic freedom, uh obviously within a certain brief. But if we work on bespoke stuff, it's usually because they really enjoy the artist or writer's work and just want something unique for 
their movie or it could be a film score, for example. So, yeah. so, so that's a writer sort of writing to brief in the style of, in their own style. That's essentially yeah. right. Does that happen much or...? It does happen a lot, yeah. For me as a sync person, it's it's a bit of a hate-love situation because we have we already have a catalogue of 60,000 songs ready to go. Won't one of those do? Which is just like, you know, <laughs> quick license negotiation. And the Spoke projects obviously require a lot more time. Deal negotiation process is unique with every project. There's not a set kind of, there's so many parameters that you're negotiating and so it's just yes way more time consuming and then it's still a pitch usually two or three composers get to demo for a job and then everyone gets paid obviously for demos but it's a lot of work and sometimes we might not be able to retain publishing rights. Gets complex. It's a bit more complex, yes. It's not my favourite thing. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So when you say everybody gets paid for doing the demo, what sort of figure is that? I mean, it depends whether it's like ads or film, but let's say for an ad, there's always different tiers, but I guess for the kinds of bands and artists that we work with, it's probably, we would kind of start at maybe like 2000 Pounds or euros, depending on the country. But um, yeah, that's usually where you start. And that's just for the writer. Like we wouldn't take a share of that. Uh, the publisher or label would only take a cut from the final fee, which is a, usually a way higher number. I make me demo, submit it, and it's accepted as an idea. What happens then? If I was your publisher, then... Obviously, our, our client, which is usually like an ad agency, they would brief you. They would, if they pick your demo, then we usually agree on a number of revisions. Uh, sometimes you your demo could be only like 30 seconds and, and for the final, they might require like a full length. Or so that's five minutes, song, whatever? For ads, it's always something between 15 and 60 seconds. Right. TV ads are usually, you know, 15 to 30 seconds. Online versions might be, you know, a minute. In some cases, they would like to release the track. So it might be like a full, full length. Yeah, it really depends on the project. But yeah, usually you set a fixed number of revisions, creative revisions, and then mix rounds. Um, because you just don't want to keep going endlessly. That's not fair within a certain budget. And then, yeah, you deliver it to the client. Maybe they might add some sound design or a voiceover and then it's ready for uh, for the ad. Yeah. Is there ever any different mixes? Is there, you know, is there a mix for TikTok and a mix for the cinema? Are they different? Are they, or things like that? Does that um, ever happen? I'd or? say, yeah. I mean, if, if cinema is part of the media plan, then that requires a different mix. But I have to say, on my side, we don't, we're not involved in that too much because that's more like once we've delivered the creative being the composition. All right, okay. What does happen a lot is that there might be different voiceovers for different territories, different languages, or sometimes there's different instrumentations used for different markets. Really? Yeah. For example, like Coca-Cola, what they do, um, you know, let's say like they might have the same composition or same, you know, like um, sound logo or particular chord progression. 
than for, let's say, if they were to create like the Middle East film, um, same as they might use different actors that are more representative of the the people there. Could be the same situation with instruments as well, or different keys even. Really? So from what looks like on the outside, a relatively simple process, putting a bit of music in with an ad, it could be a monumental bit of work. Yeah. Right, okay. Could be. That's why I said, oh, I prefer just to do like yeah, yeah. putting this song in an ad. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, honestly, both are really interesting processes. I've done both. It's it's really interesting, yeah, how complex it can be and how great some of those Results can be, um, it's yeah, it's it's interesting, but yeah, I don't I don't hate just a quick license either. So that's Charlotte's way of doing it. Many thanks to Charlotte for taking the time to chat. Please visit www.geniusmove.ie to find out about audio courses to suit you. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.